ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 17th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The Foreign Minister Penny Wong is in Israel meeting officials and the families of some of the hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza, a visit she's described as powerful and moving. It comes after a brief stop in Jordan where she announced an extra $21 million in humanitarian assistance for people affected by the Israel-Hamas conflict. Our Middle East correspondent Alison Horne has been following the Foreign Minister, and she joins us from Jerusalem. Alison, what's been the diplomatic response to Penny Wong's visit so far? Well, Kim, there's been a lot of talk of Australia being a good friend to Israel. Penny Wong has met with Israel's Foreign Minister, Ian Katz, uh, Israel Katz, and Israel's President, Isaac Herzog. Both of those dignitaries expressed some gratitude towards Penny Wong, saying her visit to Jerusalem shows solidarity with Israel. And they thanked her and the Australian Prime Minister for condemning the massacre of October 7. But there are some key issues that Israel and Australia disagree on, namely that of a ceasefire in Gaza. Just before she arrived into Israel, Penny Wong was in Jordan and she again called for a ceasefire, which Israel is rejecting. And while we haven't been able to ask Penny Wong yet whether she's raised those issues in her meetings here in Jerusalem, she did make some open comments about Australia's expectations around the humanitarian situation in Gaza and the way that Israel is conducting its side of the war. This is what she said a short while ago. We too are a democracy. Uh, And because of who we are, uh, we do advocate for consistently the application of international law and international humanitarian law. And so when we say as a friend that the way in which Israel defends itself matters, that springs from who we are. And Alison, what's the significance of Penny Wong's visit? Well, it's significant because she is visiting during this heightened time of conflict, during a war, and it is Penny Wong's first visit here since coming to office. But really, there won't be any surprises on this trip. Australia doesn't have a lot of diplomatic sway in this region. So I think it'll be more interesting to be watched by the people back in Australia. And I I, I don't think that anything that's said here will change a lot of views. Jews in Australia have already told us that they're disappointed that Penny Wong wants this ceasefire and Palestinian supporters think that the government isn't going far enough in condemning Israel for killing civilians in Gaza. So Penny Wong won't meet with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Some people might see that as a bit of a snub, but when you look at it in the context of Australia's Prime Minister isn't here doing this visit, it makes a little more sense. But tomorrow, Penny Wong will travel to the West Bank. She will meet with Palestinian leaders there and we'll have a chance after that to ask more questions about what's come out of these visits. Correspondent Alison Horn in Jerusalem. Fresh from a resounding win in the Iowa caucus, Donald Trump has turned up at a New York court that's hearing a defamation case against him. The scale of the former president's win in the first state to vote on who should be the Republican presidential candidate makes it very hard to see how he can be beaten. But his main rivals aren't giving up. Here's North America correspondent Barbara Miller. Thank you. Thank you. 
The writer Eugene Carroll arrives at a New York courthouse where a jury will determine how much in damages the former president should pay her for defaming her in connection with her allegations that he sexually assaulted her. Not the sort of event you'd normally think a presidential candidate would want to be throwing a spotlight on. But this is Donald Trump, who's found all the civil and criminal cases against him are only boosting his standings in the polls. So he turned up at New York too as jury selection began. The former president has now cemented his place as the faraway frontrunner in the race for the GOP 2024 nomination by winning 51% of the vote in the caucus in Iowa, the first state to have its say. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. Ron DeSantis came almost 30 points behind Donald Trump, but his second place exceeded expectations. They threw everything but the kitchen sink at me. In campaigning in South Carolina, the Florida governor was making the most of that small surprise. Well, guess what? We punched our ticket out of Iowa yesterday. Nikki Haley had hoped for second place in Iowa, but the former UN ambassador came a close third. Thank you, Iowa! She's already campaigning in New Hampshire, where polls show her still behind Donald Trump, but within possible striking distance. And speaking to CNN, Ms Haley tried to sideline her nearest rival, Ron DeSantis, saying she'll no longer take part in debates against him unless Donald Trump shows up. I mean, that's who... I'm running against. That's who I want. That's at the end of the day, he's the front runner. He's the one that I'm seven points away from. He's the one that we're fighting for. There is nobody else I need to debate. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson has dropped out of the race after polling less than 1% in Iowa. His exit won't make any impact, but there's a potential worry for Trump rivals with the exit of tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who polled 8% and whose supporters are more closely aligned with those of the former president. All eyes are now on New Hampshire, which votes next week, and where if there's no upset, it's almost impossible to see how Donald Trump doesn't have the nomination in the bag. The big night is going to be in November. Thank you very much, everybody. Great honour. Thank this you This is Barbara much. Miller in Washington reporting for AM. The federal government's moving to introduce new laws to regulate the use of artificial intelligence in high-risk areas, including law enforcement and health care. In the meantime, some voluntary measures are being floated, such as asking companies to label content generated by artificial intelligence. It's all part of the government's interim response to an inquiry into safe and responsible AI in Australia. And to discuss it, I was joined earlier by the Federal Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husick. Minister, can you give us an idea of what form any mandatory safeguards would take and what sort of artificial intelligence would be considered high risk enough for those laws to apply? So in broad terms, what we've wanted to do is get the balance right with uh, the work that we've undertaken so that we can get the benefits of AI while fencing up the risks and looking at uh, you know, realising that a lot of the way in which AI is used is low risk and beneficial, but there might be areas that affect people's uh, in terms of safety, uh, physical safety, in terms of their, their future prospects. Uh, for example, the way in which they get or hold on to a job or the way in which they're treated by the justice system. And uh, what we want to do is get some of the best minds through an a expert advisory panel to basically, one, define those uh, areas of high risk that require a mandatory uh, response. 
uh, and that we also uh, spell out what the consequences potentially are uh, for not doing so. Our preference is to be able to work with industry and other people that are interested in this space to be able to get a you know, uniform, cooperative uh, approach to this, and that's why we're staging it, developing a, a voluntary uh, safety standard initially and then scaling and laddering that up to uh, mandatory guardrails longer but, term. But just on those mandatory guardrails, what sort of things would they, what form would it take? Big penalties, for example? Or testing uh, of products? Well, what, I mean, the reason why we're putting a panel together to give us advice is to do just that, to inform government about some of those issues. But what we do want the, certainly the panel to focus on with uh, respect to mandatory guardrails is uh, the testing arrangements as AI is designed and developed and, pro, you know, as it's being used, uh, how, how are those models being tested? Uh, we want to have transparency about how they operate as much as you can, realising that there is a high degree of complexity with the way in which AI models work, uh, but being able to show clearly the way in which that design work uh, has occurred and the data that in inputs uh, into running those models, really important. And also accountability. We want training uh, for developers and deployers of AI systems, uh, potentially looking at forms of certification as well uh, and clear expectations of accountability if things don't go according to what uh, has been stated uh, is the expectation of those firms as they've rolled those models out. You also mentioned some voluntary standards that could include labelling of mm -hmm. AI-generated materials. Now, there's so much stuff out there. How would that actually work? And we've been talking with industry and uh, industry recognises too, within the tech sector, they recognise the challenge uh, that is posed by so much content being uh, created by generative AI. And we need to have uh, confidence that what we're seeing, we know exactly if it's organic or real uh, content or if it's being created by an AI system. And so industry is just as keen uh, to work out and to work with government on how to create that type of labelling, but it's really important. I mean, this is the biggest, more than anything else, and as I've said elsewhere, Kim, I'm not worried about the robots taking over. I'm worried about disinformation doing that. And we, we need to ensure that when people are creating content that it's clear that AI has had a role or a hand to play in that. If I can take you to another topic on the war between Israel and Hamas, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong is facing criticism for not visiting the kibbutzes in southern Israel where people were killed by Hamas. Do you agree with that decision? I think what we've uh, tried to do is ensure uh, that Australia's voice is heard in something that the world community has had uh, deep concerns about with, the re with respect to what's occurring in Gaza, uh, trying to ensure... Uh, as well, that we uh, support the extension of humanitarian assistance and we're upping uh, the amount uh, that we are providing in there, urging the respect of uh, international humanitarian law uh, and being able uh, to encourage a longer-term pathway, which is really important in that part of the world, a longer-term pathway uh, to peace. But just specifically uh, about my be, question about there, not going to southern Israel. There will always be elements of these trips that people take different views on. They will, they're entitled to their views. But What's your view is in, what I'm asking. My view is the government view. My view is that the role of the foreign minister right now is incredibly important in being able to add our voice uh, within international concerns about uh, where the, the conflict is going and, and trying to fast track 
uh, a longer-term resolution to this. South Africa has brought a case before the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. Now, Penny Wong has said overnight that Australia's support for the court doesn't mean that the government accepts the premise of South Africa's case. Are you disappointed that your government won't express support for South Africa's case? No, I think, uh, again, we, as a Cabinet Minister, you can appreciate uh, that we take a view as a government uh, at what points we do engage uh, and any further questions on that, I might leave to the foreign minister, if you don't mind. I know you're a cabinet minister and therefore bound by certain rules, but you've said before that you believed Israel's military action in Gaza is disproportionate. Do you still believe that? Yes. Do you think Palestinians are being collectively punished? I've said previously uh, that uh, I was deeply concerned about the impact of what was happening in that part of the world on both Israelis and Palestinians. The actions of Hamas, horrific, uh, brutal, and they needed to be held to account. But in doing so, innocent Palestinians should not uh, bear the brunt uh, of that uh, response. And uh, the biggest thing that we need to be able to see is obviously in the immediate uh, short term is the provision of vital assistance, humanitarian assistance, making sure that's flowing through, which is what the foreign minister is pressing during her, her visit. Uh, there will be a longer term issue around rebuilding and ultimately uh, around peace in that part of the world. And instead of us talking about a two-state solution, actually seeing this materialise in concrete terms, I think is a global priority. Minister, thank you very much for joining AEM this morning. Thank you, Kim. And Ed Hustick is the Federal Minister for Industry and Science. Until recently, young Queenslanders living in out-of-home care, such as foster homes, were told that they couldn't stay in their placement or keep getting support payments once they turned 18. But the state government changed that last July, extending support until they're 21. However, as Elizabeth Cramsey reports, some young people are having trouble accessing the scheme. Jade lived in Queensland's out-of-home care system from the age of six. After turning 18 last year, she's eligible for an annual payment of $16,000 until she reaches the age of 21. It's part of a new state government scheme to support kids as they prepare to exit care and enter adulthood. So I was going to use the funding to get some medical assistance, probably private health insurance I've got such a complex medical history and public system isn't really working. Jade lives with multiple disabilities and was hoping the funding would make a difference, but she hasn't been able to access it. It's not clear how many other young people are in the same position, but it's worrying those in the welfare sector. Luke Twyford is the Queensland Child and Family Commissioner. The precise answer is we simply don't know. We don't know how many young people have left care in the time uh, where their foster carers haven't elected to receive the additional money and where the young person has said that they need the money. And so there is a lack of transparency around what's occurred for the last five months. But we absolutely do know that there are young people coming forward and saying they haven't received their entitlement. The scheme is in two parts. One is an extension of the carer's allowance for young people in family-based placements like foster and kinship care so they can stay until they reach 21. The other is $16,000 annually for young people who turn 18 while in residential care. 
For each region, the department chose organisations to hold the funds and dispense them when eligible young people came looking. But as Luke Twyford explains, the system just couldn't cope with the demand. The system has fragmented and young people are confused around which organisation they need to go to or the organisation with the funding for them doesn't know who they are or where they are. Tom Alsop is the Chief Executive of Peak Care, the peak body for Queensland's child protection agencies. He says the government funded a 12-month design and implementation period so it would be smooth sailing from July 1st, and this hasn't worked so far. And that just puts young people who have already experienced so much disadvantage at even further disadvantage. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Child Safety told the ABC 600 young people will be eligible for the support this financial year. Currently, it's been accessed by 200 young Queenslanders. Elizabeth Cramsey. On the sidelines of the Australian Open, tennis fans are learning a new variation on the game. It's called paddle. It's played with foam bats in an enclosed court. And as Oliver Gordon reports, it's being backed by some big names in tennis. The Australian Open turns Melbourne Park into a tennis mecca each January. But on the outskirts of the precinct this year, there's a new sport on show. It's called Paddle, and Melbourne woman Rue has just tried it out. Yeah, the game is quite different from like anything I've heard of before. I actually didn't think it existed, but I, I enjoyed it. I would play it again. Paddle courts are around half the size of tennis courts and surrounded by glass. Played in pairs with foam rackets, the game has taken off in Europe and the UK in recent years. But Emily Christensen who's running the paddle court at the Australian Open, says it's still largely unknown here. Massive in Spain, Europe, it is definitely really popular, but most Australians come up thinking that it's pickleball and then uh, it's quite different in the respect where you're bouncing off the walls and it's a bit of that hybrid between tennis and squash. There are just a handful of paddle courts in Australia, but businessman and former Wimbledon board member Michael Graydon who meets me at the courts he's built in Melbourne's Docklands area, is looking to change that. We're just opening next week another uh, club in Melbourne. Um, We're hoping to open another 10 clubs in Australia and New Zealand over the next 18 months. The entrepreneur has played a key role in the expansion of paddle in the UK, sometimes by repurposing old tennis courts. It is actually a great way for um, tennis facilities, whether they're private or public tennis facilities, that may be struggling financially uh, to get a new lease of life. And uh, our first venue uh, back in the UK was a dying tennis club. They'd gone down to 75 players from a peak of 400. Once we introduced paddle, more people came, adopted paddle. Uh, Now there were well over 400 tennis players and 250 paddle players. And it's uh, enabled that club to survive. Helping the game in Australia is tennis coach turned builder Matt Levy. I think anyone who knows much about tennis um, as, as a commercial enterprise, it, it's tough going. And part of that is, is the lease and the size of space that's required. So paddle is, is probably half the size required and, and double the income. For paddle player Philippa, who's seen the sport grow in her native Portugal, the game's expansion in Australia is inevitable. I have no doubt this is going to be huge here. Is it going to take over tennis? I think that's always the, get, the question. I don't think so. I think there's space for both. Her advice for someone thinking about giving the sport a go? Just come and try. You'll get addicted. <laughs> 
Paddle player Philippa ending Oliver Gordon's report. Paddle player Philippa ending Oliver Gordon's report. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.